Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is episode 15 of the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me is Dan Alberth. Good afternoon, Dan. Hey, Brian. Also joining us on this episode is Bill Karsten of Plan Pilot. Plan Pilot is a retirement plan consulting company. As you know, part of our focus of our podcast is to shine a light on other fiduciaries and let people know what's going on sometimes behind the scenes. And Plan Pilot is absolutely a good example of a fiduciary that operates behind the scenes. So if you have a 401k plan or a 403b plan at work, there's people like Bill and companies like Plan Pilot that are working behind the scenes to make that the best experience possible for you. So it's a great conversation we have with uh, Bill and um, let's just get into it. Oh, pal. Bill, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Let's just start at the beginning. Tell tell us a little bit about where you come from and, and how you got started in your, your career and uh, how, some of your journey. How far back are you looking for me to go? <laughs> Well, Once we won't. We won't, we won't reveal how far back that really yeah, is. All right. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go with just a little overview of my family. Uh, grew up out west of Chicago, about 50 miles in a town called Elgin. I have uh, three brothers, two older, one younger, and I was the third in the family to go to University of Illinois, and the third one to go to University of Illinois to get an engineering degree, which I never got. Um, ultimately transferred over to the business school and graduated with a finance degree. But uh, more importantly, at uh, University of Illinois, met my wife, and we got married just three months out of school. That, that would be in 1993. We rushed to have children starting 10 years later. <laughs> and, uh, and now we have two boys, one who's a senior and the other who's a, a freshman at, in high school. So when you started out your career, you didn't start out in retirement plan consulting. I did not. And, and as I already indicated, going to school, I didn't really have an idea what I was going to do for a living. I was kind of still sorting that out as I came out of school. And at that time, uh, it, it wasn't a good economic environment. You know, we're still recovering from the recession of 1991. I, I remember people older than me having all of their... Uh, bong letters from interviews on on the door. So the rejection letters. All, from all the all, yes, all the the rejection letters. So it was a little bit of a nerve wracking time trying to find a job. And you know, so you know, honest truth is, was just looking to get any good job at the time. And after conducting interviews with several different companies, consulting, insurance, and banking, I realized there probably is more of an opportunity to get uh, hired into banking, which I'd already taken a, a pretty close look at. I actually uh, did an internship at a, at a bank in the summer of 92 and was fortunate enough to actually get two offers from, at the time, the two leading banks, uh, com commercial banks in Chicago, which were American National Bank and LaSalle, which, as you know, are names that don't exist anymore. But uh, I took the offer from American National Bank, and, and my big negotiation was I wanted one week unpaid for my honeymoon, and I was so excited that they actually gave me that. <laughs> um, so, so I immediately accepted the offer then from American National, and all along I had the backup of LaSalle in case they were offended that I was asking for a week off, which is funny to think, you know, as you know, how the environment got to be a few years later. Right. Gosh, I mean, kids were coming out of college with multiple offers and negotiating before they'd ever, you know, worked a day in their life, uh, you know, at a full-time job. So in, as you got into the, the banking world, you know, we've talked in, in advance of this, but you did some 
you start out normal entry level, you were doing analysis of loans, and then where did it go from there? Yeah, it's interesting because you know that's all I was focused on the initial job being a credit analyst, and you know obviously once you go to work, you start to figure things out and realize you know the the the, the pathway is one of two directions, and and that's to to stay on the credit path. Uh, you know, with the ultimate goal of you know, being a, a credit officer and chief credit officer of a bank or to be a banker, which is more of a, a sales and relationship manager position. And, and that's really what appealed to me. So my, my focus was immediately on working up the ranks of, of being a, a banker and, and ultimately ma- managing a commercial banking group. So you're at, you're at, the, you're at the bank and you're going through the, the, the mid-late 90s in banking. Everything's going swimmingly well, I assume. Just not universe, or how yeah, is that going? Time, you know, times were good for for the bulk of the '90s. You know, obviously, we all know we had the, the crash in 2000. But um, you know, from a banking standpoint, there was a lot of opportunity out there. Companies were growing, um, but also what was happening in, in that good environment was bank mergers. And I, and I went through a couple in my time at uh, American National, which they were owned by First Chicago. They merged with NBD in 1995, two years after I'd been there, and then they got bought by Bank One in 1998. And that's when I saw things were really changing. And uh, I I think the day I was sitting in my office and they they had actually sent a contractor out to rip the American Eagle off the wall of the bank building that I worked in in Elgin told me that times were really changing. And that's about actually when I got a call from LaSalle and they were opening an Elgin uh, branch. And that was actually one of the bigger reasons why I went to American National is because they had a bank out in Elgin, but LaSalle hadn't gotten out to Elgin yet. And so it was an opportunity to manage uh, a division in, in Elgin for a bank that seemed committed to staying focused on middle market commercial banking for the long term. So I jumped at the chance. And how long were you at LaSalle? Doing, so, you're, so you're at LaSalle, you make the switch, you're, you're, you're in charge of this department. This is the department that does business loans. Correct. Correct. Okay. Correct. And so I was there about four years. And after I'd been there a little over three, I saw the writing on the wall again. And it was interesting because I had debates internally with people where I just said, I, I can just see what's going on. And I feel like we're up for sale and everything's going to change. And a lot of these were people who came over to LaSalle from American National after I did. And they just didn't see it the same way I did. Um, all along, I had made a connection with the owner of a commercial bank in Elgin, Elgin State Bank. And initially, to be honest, I didn't really think that that's where I would go and, and what I wanted to do. Uh, but something else was happening at that time. I just realized working for a larger bank didn't appeal to me. You know, the, 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 the leaders of the bank are down in Chicago. I'm out in Elgin. I just felt like I was out of the loop. And what really appealed to me is the opportunity to work closely with the owner of the bank, the chairman, the president. Uh, and, 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 you know, that led me to go over to, to Elgin State with the opportunity to run their commercial banking group. And lo and behold, I was correct. Uh, LaSalle shortly thereafter did sell. And, um, you know, the, 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 the LaSalle name went away, which was, was something that nobody saw coming, just the same way with American National. And Bank, it was Bank of America that, that bought LaSalle. And I heard afterwards that uh, the executives at Bank of America were shocked that the, the employees of LaSalle Bank were not excited about being acquired and were not excited about the Bank of America name. So what, when, when you're talking about that, that was it like bureaucracy that was going on or was it just that you felt distant like you were part, you were just, you were just small 
a small piece of the puzzle or both really yeah i just felt like a being a small piece of the puzzle it just seemed it, it was interesting it is one of the problems i faced is that elgin was was a, a new banking division and really they overbuilt uh, out in elgin i was surprised how large of a facility that that they built uh, just my side of the bank commercial banking could see upwards of 15 to 20 people and this was when this was uh, 2001 is when they actually opened oh, the door. Okay, so, so when wow, I joined them, okay. they, they had gotten the approval to, to start in Elgin. I actually got to help pick the location, but I worked in Arlington Heights until until the bank was built mm-hmm. and opened in May of 2001. Uh, but then times were tough again then, as you know, 2001, 2002. And so the bank, they had a bank-wide hiring freeze. And so well, I, I understand there's a bank-wide hiring freeze, but we just opened a new division in Elgin, and I haven't hired my team yet. You know, I, I only really had half of a team, and they just, they, they weren't making any exceptions, which, again, I just thought it's odd, all these dollars invested out in Elgin, and to never, you know, they never really were launching the team in the time I was there because of what was going on around the bank. They weren't, they weren't even transferring people out from other divisions, although, you know. And this was before or after the Bank of America... Oh, merger. this was before. before. That, that okay. didn't so even happen. That it. didn't even happen until after I left. I just, okay. I just saw some changes going on that led me to believe that they were getting ready to sell. So you're, you're, you're at Elgin State now. You're closer to the leadership. You have a bigger impact on that team. Or in how big is this? I mean, how big is this team? Is it just you, or is it? Yeah, well, okay, uh, let me just back it up a little bit. So part of what was going on, too, at LaSalle, what I, where I was already, you know, questioning whether that, that's where I want to be for the long haul. You know, my wife, Tara, is pregnant with our first child, and they, they, they won't help me get a team built up, and then they're frustrated because we're not hitting the same numbers as a group that has two, three times as many bankers as I have. So all oh. of a sudden, I'm under pressure to... Uh, to ramp up and suddenly I'm supposed to, you know, be able to bring in as much business as, uh, as, as many people uh, all at once. Uh, and I wish I could say I was being paid in a way that uh, was uh, going to offset that. But, um, you know, it's going through a life change. And, and here I'm under all this pressure to work additional hours. And it was like there was no recognition, you know, what was going on in, in my world. And, and that just made it a lot easier to make that transition to to work for a family-owned bank and and to work closer to home and you know it was it was just a perfect time for that change in my life in in 2003 and when I went over initially they actually had someone else who was leading the team so I went over there to to lead a division I'd like to think that you know what I brought to the table quickly showed some of the shortcomings of of the person they had heading up that group and cutting to the chase. Within a year or two, I was the person that was that that was leading the the commercial banking group as as well as their operations team. So, at, at the height, I want to say I had upwards of 16 people reporting to me, but they'd also done some over hiring. So, the fact that later on I had less people reporting to me was more reflective of we were operating more efficiently because the bank was growing. We were adding loans, we were adding deposits, and lo and behold, the bank's profitability quadrupled within a matter of years. I mean, there were other things that worked in our favor with interest rates going up, but uh, certainly operating more efficiently was a big key to that. As long as we're talking about that, you mentioned it. What's the relationship between bank profitability and interest rates? Because there's 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 a lot of questions we get 
online. We get questions from clients all the time. People don't really understand how interest rates work and how that affects bank loans. I mean, people are excited about mortgages being low and, and cheap, like for example, right now, but then also they're seeing data that says like, here we are in 2020 and uh, banks are actually much more strict at the moment. Yeah, well, think of banks uh, three, there, there's other sectors of profitability, but let's, let's talk about three core sectors of profitability. You know, what one's going to be your loans and the interest rate spread or margin you're making on the loans versus what you're paying out on your deposits. Uh, you know, other would, would be on the retail side. You know, they're, they're, you're going to have some loans, more like home equity loans, auto loans that, that, that you hold in your portfolio as a bank and, you know, what you're earning on those over your retail deposits. And then there's fee business, which actually a lot of people don't realize for most banks, mortgages really fall under that category because they don't hold the mortgages. You know, they get sold off, they get packaged up and securitized. And that's a whole different story, as you know, for, right. for another time. But uh, for banks, the the... the uh, residential mortgages really are just a, f- a fee generation business. So like the closing costs. The the yes. Well, they get they get. Uh, but you're, you're right. They get the, basically a closing fee for bringing the bringing the deal to the table and getting it closed. Okay. So it's really in the upfront points that they get, whether or not the you know the the, the actual mortgage holder or homeowner pays the points. The the person who who brought the uh, mortgage t- together and packaged it, they get paid an upfront fee. But for a bank like, a community bank like Elgin State Bank, the, the interest rate margin is significant because the fee business is a really a small portion. I mean, another portion would be cash management fees. You're, you're, you're providing uh, services to, to your commercial clients. But uh, again, for the community banks, that interest rate margin is typically the largest portion of, of the bank's profitability. But you look at the larger banks today, you know, they're, they're getting into investment banking. They're getting into all different areas, some things that people wouldn't even historically think of as, as banking. And that's where they're making more of their revenue. And to be honest, that's what made it challenging for the community banks even before the uh, recession of 0809 was that for the larger banks they often would see commercial banking as a lost leader get them in the door you know they'd go low on the interest rate they might pay a little high on deposit rates to get them in the door because they had so many other services they're going to sell them and make profit on those services whereas that's the core business for a community bank so you know that that certainly made it a challenge if they get too low is it the is it just the the spread between what they can charge on a loan versus what they can pay on a deposit. And there's a floor on what you can pay on a deposit. You can't pay less than zero. Right. So but, if yeah. as, as other rates are coming down, like mortgage rates, that spread is tightening on well, the banks. Is that what's going yeah, on? Yeah. Well, let me give you an example. And this is a pretty good picture of Elgin State Bank back in the day. They had a lot of non-interest bearing deposits. They're the their, their commercial deposits, mm-hmm. uh, you know, clients' checking account deposits. You know, not not all the deposit money they pay interest on. So, so let's say you're in a low interest rate environment, and half of your deposits are no interest. Half of them, let's say you're paying two percent, but in that environment, you're you're you know you're getting a say you, a three percent spread on average. Your average loan rate is five. Now your margin is three on average. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. four on average. Good right. math on my part. Uh, average of two and the zero, so five minus one. Well, rates go up. Okay, you have to pay four on average on the interest rate 
you know, on the, on the interest-bearing deposits, but you're earning seven on average on your loans. Now your margin's three and a half percent. I mean, that's a, a pretty. It's a simplistic. Yeah. It's a simplistic explanation, and and but managing interest rate risk is always a challenge because, on the other hand, you also have some loans that are floating rate loans, so they do adjust as as the prime rate goes up and down, or just as interest rates in general go up and down, and others are fixed. And so that that was another one of the big challenges in banking was just managing that interest rate risk, not knowing which direction rates will go. And and there were a lot of interesting discussions that happened there. And to give you an example of how quickly things can change, go back to 2008, the the Fed funds rate was five and a quarter, which with the three percent margin on top of that prime, which is what most floating rate loans were based on, was at eight and a quarter. And you could actually sell off, as a bank, you could sell off your eight and a quarter percent prime loans and get a five-year fixed rate of 8.35. So it tells you the market thought, if anything, rates were still going to go up a little bit more. One year later, where was the Fed funds rate at? Between zero and a quarter percent, prime loans were earning three and a quarter. If you hadn't hedged your position on your floating rate loans, you found yourself in a lot of trouble. Tough to manage. And then leverage all that problem out, and then you end up with something like Lehman Brothers. Yeah, and then you have credit issues, obviously. At the same time when that happened, what, what really brought that about was, was the, the substantial credit issues, and the Fed reacted by... So credit issue being somebody can't pay their can't loans. Can't pay their loans, yeah. So you're, at, you're in the banking business for a good while, and then somewhere along the line... You decided, okay, I've done what I'm going to do in the banking industry, and you moved out to the advisory world to look at more fiduciary type, to kind of enter into the the retirement plan world. How yeah. did that come about? Well, interesting. I, you, you've known me long enough to know I've always been obsessed with retirement. And, and so, yeah, I didn't think much about it as a career path early on, but even when things were going really well, in my days at Elgin State, I was talking to people out there about possibly getting into the retirement business. I just felt like that's what I would want to do one day. And I didn't really necessarily know what that looked like. But, you know, I had a great team. I really enjoyed working with them. And that's what really kept me uh, tied to, to banking longer than I otherwise would have been. And then when things got bad, loyalty tied me in. I didn't want to just leave when all of a sudden things got uh, tough in 08, 09. Um, and, and so I stayed the course and, until I felt like there really wasn't anything more that, uh, that I could do. Uh, but then, you know, at that point, I really got more aggressive about looking at that next step and, and, and you know, went to different connections out there and had a lot of good discussions. And the honest truth is I left banking and, and went into to the retirement business, still not really knowing what I wanted to do, which sounds like a common theme for me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'm glad with the first step I made. I, I went and worked at a firm that was, it was actually launched from an accounting firm. They had a private wealth business, and then they also were starting to build a retirement plan business, mean 401, oversight of 401k and 403b plans, most, mostly 401k. And you know, they had me sold on. They really wanted to grow that. And, you know, I had a lot of connections, a lot of my old clients that, that needed help with their 401k and 403b plans, and it seemed like a good fit. Uh, but I just quickly realized 
you know, after working there a while, that really wasn't their focus. They saw that as more, at least in my opinion, as a feed into uh, getting more private wealth opportunities. And to me, it's its own standalone business. And not to say you can't have a firm that does both, but you can't really say the focus is more on, on one versus the other. And that's what we've learned in our in our business. I mean, we've always had the opportunities to create, you know, client. We're working with an individual client that owns a business. And they say, can you set up a 401k for us or a four, you know, whatever. We can absolutely do that. But it's, it is a whole other area of expertise. There's other professionals that you have to tie in. And even though we're kind of facilitating the process, the bulk of the heavy lifting has to happen with other people that do things we don't know how to do. Right. Uh, it's just an administrative hurdles that are there that are that are really for us anyway it's it's an almost an accommodation in many ways when we're we're doing it but you really do need to have a specialty in that if you're going to do a fantastic job no agreed and it was interesting because you know the, the firm i worked at they had people that were just dabbling in it and i don't say that you know to say something bad about them it's just their focus was on private wealth business, but then they, they had clients who wanted assistance with their plans. And so they, they were they were learning the business and they're helping clients out, but they didn't have anybody fully dedicated to it. And, and that's after I, I joined that firm, I quickly realized that this has to be your main focus. I, I can't be split between, you know, trying to help oversee retirement plans and and private wealth just from a knowledge standpoint, but, but also the other issue is, is the conflict. You don't want to put yourself in that position where, okay, the, the owner's retiring. He has a significant amount of dollars in the plan, and he says, now what do I do? Well, you know, as soon as I say, well, we can help manage that for you individually, and you roll the dollars out of the plan, if we're charging more for that service outside of the plan than what he's, you know, he or she are paying on the inside of the plan, obviously you're faced with a significant conflict. Correct. Correct. You've got to put the other person's needs ahead of your own. Right, right. That, that you just have to. Now, granted, you can't price yourself out of business, obviously, because you know, take it to the absolute extreme, and you'd say, "Hey, I'll just do this all for free for you. Here, let me pay you for what you're what I'm doing for you." You can't do that. But if if put between two different, if you're diagnosing someone's situation and you have two different potential prescriptions, you want to go with the one that's going to be the best for the client. Well, right, and you know, talking on conflicts. I, I'll tell anybody that we're trying to sell our services to, we have one, one conflict here. And there's only one way you can get rid of the one conflict we have is you hire us. But obviously, before you've hired us, I have a conflict. I want you to hire us. Uh, and, and nobody can get away from that. But the way we operate, all our services are spelled out clearly, and we're, we're paid a flat fee. So from that point forward, either we can deliver and, and stay engaged and do what we said we would do for the fee we said we would do it for. Or if we fail at that, then, then the client will fire us. But we don't go in with the intent to sell them other services because we don't have other services to sell them. So let's, that's, that's a good stepping off point. So you were, you were in the retail side, kind of paired up with this, this group, and then you found your way to Plan Pilot. Tell us a little bit about Plan Pilot what specifically you guys even do as in your role as a company and where where you fit into the big big picture because i think a lot of people don't really even realize that that there's services like plan pilot out there that are operating behind the scenes and because they don't may not know they either make assumptions that are wrong about how these things work or 
they get they they hold on to frustrations if they're part of a committee that's running the plans for their employer or if they're a business owner they may be looking at this thing going it's kind of a hassle they may not even know that there's somebody out there that can solve problems for them so what's what's plan pilot all about yeah well and part of what makes plan pilot unique is we were just launched in february of 2012 and the honest truth is that gave us a big advantage I mean, firms that have been around much longer, they launched their their business under a completely different environment. You know, there 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 wasn't a focus on conflicts. It wasn't something that you know the word fiduciary wasn't really talked about much, and, and so the focus was just more on the business end of hey, if there's an opportunity to make more revenue, if we can serve a client in that area, what's to stop us from doing that? You know, there wasn't as much focus on the client's best interest. Uh, so our founder was, you know, he, he had worked at the larger firms, Towers Watson, Mercer. And, you know, there, there were many things that he saw as opportunities in starting a new firm. One is his own longevity, you know, obviously it give, gives him control over the firm. But, you know, I've heard him talk many times about he just got frustrated with, you know, cross-selling, with billing hourly, you know, and just the, the tracking of hours. And he just saw a better service model where he could be more focused on the client. And let's identify what services they need and provide a comprehensive service approach for their retirement plans. And, 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 and let's just agree to a flat fee based on those services. If your needs change, we'll revisit it. But otherwise, now we can set that aside and get down to the business of overseeing and, and managing your plan. So about about overseeing and managing plans. I mean, what what really does Plan Pilot even do for their customers? Well, you know, a lot of people see the words investment advisor and they they think, oh, you know, do do you, you know, do you manage the investments? And I intentionally use the word manage uh, because I, that's where I see there's a big misperception often. Uh, you know, we don't have our own unique funds that that uh, that we're managing you know what stocks or what bonds are within a fund that that's not the business that we're in rather on the investment side we assist clients with identifying the funds that would best fit their plan and we, and we really start at a higher level of, of saying let, let's understand your employee population let's lay out an investment menu of what categories make sense you know including target date funds and bond or fixed income funds u.s and international stock funds and get agreement on what should that menu look like and then once there's agreement on that let's go fill all those categories with the best fund out there to fit your investment policy which will help them develop you know that goes way beyond just looking at what's the hottest fund with the highest returns but also looking at managers with experience that have long-term proven strategies, low-risk strategies. You know, we, we factor all these things in, and that in and of itself is just a very small part of what we do. You know, we, we have our five service pillars. Investment oversight is, is one of those five. Uh, the others would be plan governance, plan design, record keeper or service provider consultation and I'll, I'll ex explain these uh, a, a little bit a little bit later and and uh, participant education which we don't get into participant advice just education because again given our role as an investment advisor we would see that as a conflict if we're in in talking with participants and telling them which which funds to invest in mm -hmm. But uh, a typical relationship actually starts out a lot more focused on some of the services other than investments. 
setting, helping them develop a committee, setting their plan governance, their committee charter, uh, fiduciary acknowledgments, fiduciary training for those members so they fully understand the role that they should be playing in ERISA and what their, what their requirements are under ERISA to make sure that they, they stay in compliance. And ERISA is the government regulatory body that oversees these types of plans? The Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, yes. Uh, not, not real exciting to read. It's an interesting read, and, and there's, there, there have been some updates over time, but interestingly, a lot of the core concepts under ERISA have stayed the same since 1974. So a lot of the employees or employers rather, this could be uh, colleges, it could be companies that have or for-profit organizations, non-profit organizations. I get the sense from other conversations we've had that there, there's a lot of things that they just don't even are, they don't even know that they're taking on huge amounts of risk the way they're currently structured is that part of is that why some of these things are non-investment oriented this is just the structural things you're discussing yeah and for our firm we found a, a niche uh, you know 403b plans were not subject to ERISA until 2009 and you know so even at the time our firm was launched a couple of years later many of the 403b plan sponsors had not yet hired a fiduciary, I hired a, an advisor to assist them with the plan. So actually a lot of our, the way we were able to build our practice quickly is actually getting plan sponsors who had never ever hired an advisor before to, to hire plan pilot and our comprehensive service approach really resonated with them. They, they'd never even reviewed their fees that they were paying for, you know, for record keeping, for the administration of the plan, for their investments. They hadn't taking a look at their investment lineup. You know, they just didn't have the oversight in place. So they needed someone that could really start right. at the ground level with them and, 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 and work the way up and make sure that everything was in place, process and documentation. I mean, those are the keys. Go out there and, you know, read lawsuits and, and, and court opinions, and, and you'll see that the process that is followed and the documentation of that process being followed are really the best defense out there. Can you step back a little bit and talk a little bit about what are the risks that business owners are taking on when they're offering a 401k plan or a qualified retirement plan to their employees? What are those risks? Yeah, I would say relative to ERISA and, and compliance, right now, the, the way the landscape is out there, attorneys go after fees. It's the easiest thing for them to, to prove that fees for a plan are too high and it's easier for that for them to get a ruling and, and, or a settlement to, to monetize that. Uh, but interestingly, you know, I look at my own client base, lawsuits hasn't been their biggest issue. And, and really what it is is, is and, and it's not even necessarily general ERISA compliance, especially after they've been working with us for a couple of years, it's ensuring that they're administering the plan according to the document. And it's just surprising uh, just how much confusion there is out there about plan rules. And, you know, I can, I can understand that from the standpoint you read through a plan document and, you know, it, it isn't necessarily intuitive what, what every, everything means. But at the same time, what's surprising to me is there are plans that have been out there. We have clients that, that have had plans in place for decades, and there's never really been to their knowledge, that moment where an attorney, for most of for, for most of the clients, where there's been an attorney that got involved or any kind of an ERISA expert to go through the plan and, in essence, perform an audit 
and ensure that how the plan is being administered aligns exactly with how the plan document reads. And that could be things like when are people eligible, when are people not eligible, what's the vesting schedule, what's the match. So some people out there just flying by the seat of their pants or like what we've seen with educators is for years, you're talking about fees, we'd run into educators and almost 100% of their 403B money was in an annuity platform, whether they needed it or not, because for whatever reason, and I don't really know the history as well as I probably should, but for whatever reason, annuities dominated the 403B space for a long time before even I got into into my career. And when I walked in and would meet a lot of teachers, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, I thought, wow, this is just really expensive for them to be having this type of a vehicle. No, Brian, you're right. And actually, I have a client who has a, a plan that's over $70 million. It's a new client and 100% in annuity funds. And fortunately for many of our clients who are in annuity-only plans when they engage us, typically the investment costs for plans of that size have, have been reasonable. Uh, in the case of this plan, unfortunately, they were in a higher cost share class that you would expect to, to only see in, in a smaller plan. And, and we've rectified that uh, situation in terms of putting a new investment menu in place. The challenge is, as you know, with annuities, only the participants can move the dollars. So even after, you know, that now the work has just begun, we, we've, we've put a much better investment menu in place with mutual funds. Going forward, dollars will be mappable, which means the plan sponsor, when they know a fund is problematic and they need to put a new fund in, can remove the old fund and, and move the dollars over. But plans with annuities, it's not that simple. All they can do is redirect future dollars. So someone was putting money in ABC annuity, there's a similar fund that's much lower cost and better performing that's XYZ mutual fund. All the plan sponsor can do is move those dollars over. And now participant education is critical that they understood those participants understand why these changes have been made, how they're beneficial to them, and that they need to take action to take advantage of these better investments that are now available. When you're meeting with your clients, are there some common misconceptions about where you add value that you run into there well i'd say there's more of a there, there's misperception out there about what they should be focused on uh you know and, and so many people are focused on just investments or just are my record keeping fees appropriate and and they really need to be ensuring that they have proper oversight and management of the plan across the board. And every decision, almost every decision, and I'll come back to almost, but almost every decision is a fiduciary decision. So whether it's you know, what investments are offered, who is the record keeper, what services will be provided, it's not just about the fees, it's are the, you know, are the fees reasonable for the services being delivered. So, you know, Every decision that's a fiduciary decision needs to have a proper process and it needs to be documented accordingly to provide that defense if it's ever called into question. Going to back to what I said about almost, you know, there are some things that aren't fiduciary decisions. I mean, if you're serving on your retirement committee and times are tight, like are happening in a lot of companies and the committee is tasked with, we have half the budget we used to have, you have to come up with a new 
employer contribution formula that's obviously now going to be lower, clearly that's not a fiduciary decision. We still help clients with that. We just clearly document that we all recognize we can't act as fiduciaries in this capacity, uh, but we're simply acting in a settler capacity to, to work in the best interest of the sponsor in that case. Yeah, we run into that a lot where a lot of the bigger impact things on people's lives, just working with the individuals, it's probably not the investment policy. I mean, there's basics that if you get them wrong, it's a big impact. Mm -hmm. But whether you, you know, I see people sometimes asking questions on, hey, which S&P 500 index fund should I own? Right. Or should I, or I, I'm going to own three, so I'm diversified. I own three <laughs> S&P 500 index funds. And you're, you're in the same stuff. But there's just these behavioral things that are totally controllable that add huge value in big impact decisions that are not always the sexiest thing, but right. they, they really can add a lot of value. And whether it's with an individual or whether it's with a, a big plan where you're responsible for dozens or hundreds of people, those decisions, they are a big deal. They do compound over time. Yeah, well, tagging on to what you said, a couple of things. One of the clients uh, who, who just helped them overhaul their investment menu some of the changes weren't that glamorous. We did change out their S&P 500 index fund. Now, instead of 0.09%, the participants will pay 0.04%. I mean, but in that case, it's obvious. Why should you ever pay $0.09 cents for something that you can get for, for $0.04? Right. Cents? Uh, and then you talked about participants uh, investing have been in investment strategies that don't seem logical. And we actually see that a lot with target date funds where a participant will select multiple target date funds. Now, there's not an obligation on behalf of the plan sponsor to address that issue, but they're your employees. You want them to be successful, and so that's where the education becomes critical. And when we see those types of things happening on plans, we do everything we can to get, you know, get in front of that participant and, and make sure they understand what a target date fund is and, and why it may not make sense the, the way they're investing. Can you get back to some of the fiduciary-based decisions that need to be made? When you look at a business owner, you have a small business owner with 50 or 100 employees, they're setting up a plan, they might not necessarily, they don't know what they don't know. Right. They set up the plan, everything's running, we, they, they've selected all their index funds or what have you, but you're talking what you had said earlier about making fiduciary based decisions. These business owners may be taking on a bunch of risk that they don't realize or understand the types of risks that they are taking on. Uh, back in the day, I was visiting with a 401k wholesaler and they produced a lawsuit document, uh, a legal, the legal document of this lawsuit that was out there was a fortune 1000 company. What I found very striking was that it listed the company and then it listed all of the officers and it listed all of the board of director members individually mm -hmm. that those people are, is it, am I correct in assuming that some of these people are taking on individual risk for managing these plans as the, as the owners of the company that they need to maintain it and act as a fiduciary themselves? Yeah, Dan, let me go into a, a couple different categories on that. First, okay. if, you're, if you're an owner or you're on the board, you can't get away from the fiduciary responsibility. You can delegate it to a committee or members of your administration team, but you still retain that responsibility for overseeing their actions to make sure they're doing their job. So we recommend to our clients, 
for their board's benefit, you should report to the board. And, and we've gone to board meetings to present what, you know, what has been done on the plan and, and make sure that they're informed. Uh, and, and by the same token, that applies to committees that, that hire us or for their record keeper. You know, they just can't offload that fiduciary responsibility. What they can do is make sure they have a good fiduciary liability insurance policy in place. And that's one of those on the initial checklist of let's make sure you have that policy in place. You're not getting paid anything extra. We obviously know you intend to act in the best interest of your participants, but you're still vulnerable. So let's make sure you have a robust policy in place that, that offers that protection. And, and we do see individuals named from time to time, but, but typically what an attorney wants to go after is the, the business or if it's a nonprofit, their endowment um, or their insurance policy to, to get paid out. But you're absolutely right that there, that there is that, that personal liability there. Uh, so moving on to, to fiduciary decisions, you know, some are obvious fees, but even there, it's, it's not about getting the lowest cost. It's about ensuring the fees are reasonable for the services provided. So you could go out searching for a record keeper, and you, there's a wide range of different services they offer. You may not select a lowest cost provider because you select one that, that has a, offers you record keeping, administration, a robust participant education program, but you just have to make sure you're pricing out all of those services uh, accordingly. And then just, you know, any, for any service, one thing that, that, that we always highlight, and we've talked about it already earlier, conflicts of interest. I think that's the hidden trap that many plan sponsors aren't really thinking about. And one of two things, either avoid providers who have inherent conflicts of interest or have it embedded in the agreement what's allowable and what's not. So, you know, if you're, if you're working with an advisory firm who also has private wealth management services, put it in the agreement. You're not allowed to sell your private wealth management services to our plan participants because right there you, you, you have a potential conflict. And those are the types of things that fiduciaries really have to be careful of. And just any new service added to the plan, there should be a process in place. And an example of one that um, that we've gone through is a, a record keeper who serves many of our clients came out with a managed account solution that they wanted to add to clients' plans. And for them, it's just, hey, it doesn't cost a plan sponsor anything, and participants only pay if they opt in. And, and to, to the plan sponsor's ears, that's, okay, we don't have to pay anything, and a participant only, only goes into it. If they choose to on their own, I'm covered. And we would say, wrong. <laughs> because you just endorsed that you endorsed program. it you allowed it to be offered in your plan and and then later if it turns out that that service you know it doesn't stack up to competitive services out there based on its offerings you know based on its fees you now are are potentially liable so even in a case like that or you know think about something as simple as loans that are offered in the plan you want to make sure that the loan fees that are charged under your record keepers program are in line with what other providers would, would charge. And I can see how business owners, especially, or just anybody that's on the leadership team or a board, they're busy. Okay. And this is just a, one more thing that they'd rather kick the can down the road, not deal with. It seems like it's just minutia, but if it, if it's done really, really well, then it's a benefit to everybody in the organization. If you can, if you do it right, so it, it should be a priority. 
Right. And along those lines, you know, if I, if I ever got, got out of this business and, and now let's say I'm on the other side and, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for the oversight of a plan, I wouldn't accept the fiduciary responsibility without having an appropriate team of fiduciaries in place. I, I, I need to be assured that, you know, we, we've got record keeper, a plan administrator, we have access to ERISA counsel when they're needed, and, and we have a plan advisor who this is all they do all day that's going to assist us. And it is all I do all day. And let me assure you, not a week goes by that a client doesn't ask me a question that I don't readily have the answer to. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a complex business. Um, and, and so sometimes we, we have to dig deeper and we, we have to do that research. But I certainly can't imagine trying to oversee a plan, being held to the, the, the standard of an expert, which ERISA holds you to, without being an expert in, the, in this area. You mentioned the complexity. Did ERISA create something that's overly complicated? I mean, does it, does it really need to be the saving? Because from the participant standpoint, they're putting their money away and it goes into some funds. And then when they retire, they take the money out. To them, it seems like it should be relatively straightforward and simple. Where does all this complexity come from? Because a lot of this backstage stuff that the participants, the employees don't realize it has to be done, and it does cost time and money for their backstage by their employer. Why is all that complexity even there when everybody could just, I mean, I've had people ask, couldn't we just have a, a rule that says we can throw 20% in a IRA account and deduct it? Yeah, I would say some of the complexity is favorable. You know, there there's some things they come out with that I think are beneficial, and you know, not everybody will understand them, and it, it might only, you know, some of the new rules might only positively impact a, a portion of the population. But we always favor simplicity, and certainly we do face some frustration when it comes to ERISA. A perfect example of that is the fee disclosure requirements. Well intended, right? To to be totally transparent with participants, but if you look at <laughs> a fee disclosure that's issued by any record keeping provider it's i'm sorry it's a head scratcher to it's the mail that comes and then well for us what happens is this the mail comes and we'll get we'll get an inquiry we're not even involved in the plan but we'll get an inquiry from a client says hey i just got this thing for my 401k plan what is what does this even say and usually it's oh it's the fee disclosure it just tells you what the all the expenses are in the plan which then triggers a million other questions wait just a second you know what was that you know and it may just be just fine but they just don't know and it just or it goes straight into the shredder and you just burned a lot of paper but that's and that's it. more likely you know if, if a participant gets a, a 15 page fee disclosure annually that has a lot of fine print my question is First of all, are they going to read it? And right there, probably weeded out most people. No. No. And you can put me in that camp. I mean, I get I get the fee disclosure for our own plan. I don't read it, although I guess I know, you know all what about the costs it. are. But I wasn't reading them before I was in the retirement industry uh, either, so guilty as charged. But, you know, even if you read through them, they're very complex. And how much information does someone really need to get at the, the core of what they're paying? You know, for, for the plans that... that that we oversee, you know, someone invests in a target day fund, and that accounts for a large portion of the population. The expense ratio on that target date fund is 0.47. That's what you're paying in that case. I mean, all plans operate differently, but for, for many plans, that's the number. You're, you know, some of that's going to the investment manager, some of that's going 
for the other services, but you know, at the core, that's really what the participant is paying is that 0.47 uh, expense ratio. But there's 15 pages that tells you everything and more than you want to know about every single fund and every potential fee in the plan that doesn't apply to, to most people. So is there a better way? Yes. Uh, the Department of Labor realizes this. And by the way, the Department of Labor is uh, responsible for overseeing uh, ERISA. Uh, they're working on it, but there's still more improvements to be made. I say they still haven't quite hit the mark, and, and actually that's an area where we help out plan sponsors with their participants. Is the good news is the record-keeping providers, they send out the legal notice. So the plan sponsor's covered. They've met their obligation under ERISA. Now we can just say it in the terms we want to say it in that hopefully – some of the participants at least will read it and, and understand what their fees are because the goal is to for them to understand what they're paying. So in addition to the legal communications that come out by law, plan pilots there to develop additional communications that are more simplified, more in English yes. for people? Yeah, just to, to create that transparency. I mean, the, the belief, well, our strong belief and the, getting to be more the belief in the industry is everybody should know what they're paying, you know, and that's what some of the more recent legislation is, is going after is that there shouldn't be hidden fees. You know, and it, it, participants should, should fully understand what their costs are. And, and it actually goes beyond the participant to the plant sponsor. One of, one of the funnier stories I had, and this was in my early days getting in this business, it was one of the business owners I had banked. And when I met with him, he said, well, we pay nothing for our plan. I'm like, you <laughs> don't pay nothing. Yeah. <laughs> And he says, well, you know, our guy comes out a couple times a year. He's like, well, yeah, I think we have like a, a $15 a, a year fee. And I don't even know what fee he was referenced to. But, right. I, you know, I knew the guy well enough. I couldn't, I couldn't resist, but I said, does he ride out in his underwear on a bicycle? Because if he's only making $15 a year per plan, how could he afford to do more? And it actually caught his attention. He thought, I guess I never thought about it, but why would he even come here if he's getting $15 right. a year? What's the point? Like, he wouldn't. So, you know, it started a good conversation. We rolled up our sleeves, we dug in, and he was shocked to realize, oh my gosh, I didn't understand, you know, these expense ratios and who was getting paid what. And it's like, it really shouldn't be a mystery. You know, you should fully understand what you're paying to every service provider and you're obligated to know and to, to assess those fees relative to the services. And we'd agree, simpler is better most of the time. I mean, some, one of, that's one of, one, of our, one of our guidelines is simple and effective. You've got to have both. You can't just go, you can't be overly simplistic. Right. But if you're going to put any complexity for, into a situation, you want to benefit greatly from that. Yeah, and I'll give you an example of one of the greater success stories with a client. Uh, and, and all of this is very simple. They, they actually, you know, this is an in, uh, industry I serve where they, they have some pretty lucrative formulas. So I don't want anybody listening to this and think, oh, my gosh, why is my employer not paying this? This isn't an industry that doesn't pay high salaries, but they give big contributions to their plan. But they had a formula where they were just giving their employees 10%. I mean, once they met the eligibility requirements, they, they, they would deposit 10%. The employee selects their investments and so the employer is figuring out a formula to contribute 10% of the of the salary right so a person makes 50,000 a year let's say they need to be there a year they meet that requirement going forward 
10% or $5,000 for that $50,000 a year employee is going to be deposited in paycheck by paycheck into their account according to their investment selection, which even if they haven't made a selection, this plan accounts for that. Uh, because given the way it works, someone could have never signed up for the plan and now they're getting these dollars and that's why they need to have a default investment, which you won't be surprised to hear is their target date funds. And it's better than it used to be. Agreed. And I was not a big fan of target date funds going, going back many, many years. And, um, I'm happy to say that you know, there's been a lot of improvements made. In fact, our analyst team dug deep with what happened in the first quarter of 2020, and we're able to show how there's improved diversification relative to what we saw in 08, 09. And there were a lot of horror stories uh, with, with certain target date fund families that, that just greatly underperformed even what you would expect to see in a, in a down market like that. But yeah, so definitely vast improvements there. And the demand has pushed for that. That's 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 the good news of that. But uh, for so for this plan, they realized okay, we put in ten percent. The participant didn't have to do anything. They're saving ten percent. Get nothing out of this, you know. And it's ten percent. It really isn't even enough. They actually modified their plan to do multiple things. They now give employees 7%. I mean, they knew it would be drastic just to say, we're going to go to all matching. You know? So they still give 7 but they give dollar-for-dollar dollar match on 4 So now they actually gave the opportunity to give 11 And they auto-enroll employees at 4%. So mm-hmm. no one can say, I didn't know. Well, you didn't know. The only way you're not in the plan is you actually had to opt out. You had to sign a paper that said, no, I don't want this free money. So day one now, that that person's eligible. Instead of starting at 10, they're getting 15. Granted, 4% is being pulled out of their paycheck, but they still made it better in that they're now getting 11. Well, if you can get somebody to 15, they have a shot. Well, right. They have have a shot of retiring at their current lifestyle. But that you've got to get them there because the average person is going to say they'll end at their match. We see we see it on two two different spectrums. We see people who give the minimum to get the match, and then they go and they they stop saving entirely. We've seen that. We also see people in the higher income areas where they set it and forget it to max out their plan, and all of a sudden they're capped out in their four hundred one k, and now it's not even close to a ten or fifteen percent of their income anymore. They're under saving dramatically. They're under investing for their retirement, and they were like, "Yeah, but I put everything into our four hundred one k plan." Right, but this story gets better because they also put in auto escalation. So now the next year they up their the, the participants four to five, the next year five to six until it hits 10 is where they cap it. And so now someone who's been there for six, seven years, they're get, putting 21% away. And that became critical in that they're in an industry that got hard hit recently. And so they, they had to suspend their contributions for a while and they felt horrible about it. I said, you did a great thing years ago because now everybody that stayed in the program is still at least putting away 10%. They didn't go to zero. Before your old program, they would have gone, the, the do-nothing participant would have gone from 10 to zero. Now they went from 21 to 10. Yeah. Huge difference. And hopefully they'll get back to 21 when things get better, but at least now they know that they've got an automated program that, that still has dollars going in. Well, that education component is so critical. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons we, that's one of the reasons we started this podcast is that, you know, we were, I w- we were seeing comments on social media where 
new investors had just gotten in on March 24th of 2000 near the bottom of that. I won't even call it a bear market, even though mathematically it was. But any, in my opinion, anything that happens inside of one statement, that's a correction. Mm-hmm. But they got in at, the, at a lucky point and they've, you know, the market's up 50, 60 percent off that bottom. Right. And they're ignoring long term history and they don't really understand what their expectations should be. I mean, if you're 23, 24, 25 years old and you're thinking, hey, gosh, at these rates, I'll be retired by the time I'm 27 or 28. This is fantastic. Yeah. Let me pour on the risk. This is easy. <laughs> you know, they subscribe to. I won't mention who they subscribe to on, on Twitter, but they'll subscribe to somebody who's not a investment person at all, who has yeah. not no expertise in this area, and just fanning the flames for their own fame and for their own followers, and it's working. There's well, millions of, of kids out there throwing risk to the wind, and they're, they're, some of them are going to start getting hurt really bad eventually. And for that education piece, that pillar that you guys provide, that education piece to let people know, hey... You need to save 10, 15, 20% of your pre tax income, period. Right. And invest it. You can't just go out and day trade $1,000 and in all probability, you're probably not going to retire anytime soon if, you, if that's your starting point and that's the all you ever put in. Yeah, it's easy to get swept up in when the market's rocketing up. And I, and I was guilty of it when I was younger. I, I just recently turned 50, which had significance for me in this story, I'll tell you. And during the 90s, you know, we talked about times were tough early in the 90s, but then the markets just took off. And you just start getting used to, hey, 10, 15, 20% per year is just getting to be normal. And you start figuring out the math on that and and the compounding. And, you know, I had it in my head. We didn't have kids yet at the time, but I I had it in my head, whoa, we'll be able to retire at 50. Well, I'm 50 and I'm not retired. And I realized many, many years ago that wasn't going to happen. Uh, you know, a couple of market crashes since then and lots of uh, expenses with kids. But I certainly can relate to that euphoria that goes with the market going up. And, and what I'll share is I'm more concerned about the near retirees. And I bump into people quite often who say, the market's really been red hot. I've been putting more money in. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. If anything, you should be going the other direction. So these you, are people who are approaching retirement. They're, they're very close to retirement. Right. So let's say they're... We, hear, we, they, see, we see it a little bit here and there already, right. but yeah. Yeah. So let's say they, they think that their, their appropriate strategy is 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Well, if that's where they were six months ago and now the market's up 50% and they haven't done anything, they'd already be maybe 60% stocks, 40. Now, if they're moving money into stocks, now maybe they're 70, 30. And as we all know, that's a horrible place to be when the market crashes and you're near or in retirement. And that's, that's, that's probably one of the, the main pillars that we hit on with, with people is just focusing on that risk level that you're taking at a consistent basis and yeah. monthly rebalancing or regular rebalancing or hey where's your where's your risk target where's the risk of the portfolio when you can match those up and see if they're close it it really calms things down and you you can get ahead of that although we still run into a, a few people here and there where they had like one position that that they wanted they got excited we have people from here time to time that will say i want to own xyz i want to own right. abc because i love the company and they'll say okay Put, a lot, put enough in there that it'll be cool if it does great, but not so much that your whole plan blows up if it goes bad. Yeah. But we've heard from a few of those people who are like, hey, you might want to consider putting some sort of a floor 
uh, some sort of like a stop order underneath that stock just in case it tanks. At least you get out and you protect those profits because you've done very, very well in, in XYZ. And that doesn't really require that you sell today. Right. It just says, hey, do you want to protect what you've earned? Because it's been a great ride. And we still sometimes will get pushback. Oh, I, I, I believe. I have confidence. I believe. I know that company. I wanna. <laughs> I wanna go on that ride. We we did an episode on the on the on a book called Dot Con, and mm-hmm. it went through the whole late '90s internet bubble, and uh, that exact thing. That language is when it when it percolates up again, and you've heard it before. It's like the back, the hair on the back of your neck will stand up, mm-hmm. and you go, oh, I've, "I've heard this. I, I know how this movie ends." It's, it's, it's terrifying, but you just, you do, you have to focus on risk and you have to focus on probability. And right now it's easy to get caught up in all those kinds of things. So, but it sounds like plant pilot really helps out the business owner because you guys are in a position to really educate the employees and help the employees understand what kind of great benefits their employers are providing to them. We've seen several situations where employees aren't even participating. They're not even taking advantage of the match. They don't understand or know the benefits that their employer are providing. And so there's, it's whole hum, but you guys are in a place where you can help educate them and maybe get them jazzed up and a little bit excited for what they're actually getting from their employer. No, no Dan, it's interesting you say that. Participant education sessions, if, if I ever am talking with participants that are in a match plan, my first question to the group is what about your plan provides the greatest return on investment? And every once in a while I see that smile from someone and they know what it is, but you know, be like, oh, I don't know the S and P 500 fund. And I, you know, say the match, it's the match. As soon as you put the money in, you're getting a hundred percent return. Or even if it's a 50 cents on the dollar match, you're getting 50% return. There's no fund that's going to going to give you that immediate uh, return. So, you know, it's just getting it out there in a way that makes them pause and hopefully they, you know, they're hearing you when you throw that out at the, at the beginning. Well, it's not even mentioned that, that, that free money they got from their employer, every dime of growth on that is return. Right. And compounded over time. I mean, that, like you mentioned that one company, the company's providing more than half of what's going in for them. So gosh, you really are getting more than more than 100%. And it's not just 100% one time. It's like 100% return on the money you put in because it's double every year. Yeah, and the good news is I think there's getting to be more and more recognition for, for that than there, than there was many years ago. People, when they're thinking about whether they want to stay or leave, they, they're, they're weighing that heavily into their decision. Well, you know, people just aren't... Generally, we see people who aren't equipped to do this themselves and they don't know how much they need to save. They've already backed themselves into a corner with their expenses at home. So now they're trying to figure out how do I fund my education? Cause I just spent every dime that it came in. Mm-hmm. And this is especially true for people who grew up in a household where maybe, maybe mom and dad had pensions and they never had to think that way. And now they're, they're responsible for, not only picking how much do I save and figuring out that math, how much am I going to need, and then where do I put the money, and then 
do I make adjustments? And I get these statements in the mail and this mail that comes, it's confusing and I don't know what to do with it. And I, is it, does this mean I need to take some action when the answer could just be, Hey, put 20% away and put it in your target date fund and wake up when you're 65. It could be that simple for most people, but I go back to the complexity thing. People don't know what they don't know. And so because of that, they're stressed over every piece of mail that comes in. They're worried about these things. They don't understand them well enough. And that's where people like you guys come, can come in and really add value and help them clear the mechanism, so to speak, so they can focus on the things that are most important. No, I agree. And keeping it simple. I mean, auto enrollment. I have, I've had clients who are reluctant to put that in a place. We feel like we're, we're forcing something on our employees. And, and I said, well, you have two choices. You can either put in auto enrollment, which they can opt out of. You know, it's, you, you, you say you're forcing it on them, but actually what you're doing is providing what you think is the best advice in the way you set up your program. And they can always say, I don't want to follow your advice, and they can opt out. Or alternatively, you can keep dealing with the frustrated 65-year-old in your office saying, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to retire. I'll always go for, hey, let's set up the program in a way that if somebody just does nothing, they should be set for retirement unless, you know, if, if they choose to opt out, at least now you can say, we try to help you. You know, we, we kept trying to put you in the program. You kept kicking yourself out. I don't know what to do for you rather than having someone come in and go, I just didn't understand how this program worked. I didn't understand the match. I didn't understand compounding of interest. Well, you can automate your program now in a way that prevents that from happening. We're big fans of stacking the deck in your favor. And automation is an easy one. It's a real easy one. How can, I guess the one question I would have is, who are the employers that, or the size of companies that Plan Pilot works with typically? Uh, We're typically working with plans that have 200 or more participants up to, Say three, four, five thousand. That that would really be uh, be our sweet spot. So, if you're an employee at one of these companies, and uh, or if you're involved in the leadership at one of those companies, I guess two questions. If I'm an employee, how do I encourage my leadership to look at these issues? What what would be some things that I could do to? I'm wondering about if we either we have a plan and I'm not sure if it's a well-run plan or maybe we don't have a plan at my company and I'd like to have a plan. What are, what's probably some good ways that an employee could reach up the chain of command, so to speak and say, Hey, what can we do here? Well, they could start with some of the same questions I would, if I'm talking with a a plan sponsor and, and, and that would be, when's the last time you looked at your plan fees? You know, when's the last time we looked at the plan investments? If there's not good answers to those questions, clearly some assistance is needed because there should be ongoing oversight in those areas. Are those, I mean, those are great questions. Are there other questions that maybe sometimes, and you kind of touched on this earlier, but are there any other questions that the employer should be asking you at Plan Pilot that they're not asking? Where they, they come to the table and they, like you mentioned earlier, they're fixated on investments. Mm-hmm. But there's these other pillars of your service offering that they may be ignorant of. You, you, can you go through those pillars one more time just for... It was hard enough for me to, to get it right the first time, Brian. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's a pop quiz. Yeah, no, it's uh, plan governance. 
So when you're thinking, that's the first one. So when you're thinking plan governance, again, it's, it's making sure that, that you've got the right policies, procedures in place that involves your committee charter. I could even put an investment policy statement under, under that category. Uh, you know, you have all the right protocols in, in place. Plan design. And that's one, you know, you were just asking the question, what, what do plan sponsors maybe not take a close enough look at? Some do, but some don't. Um, and from it's, it's from two aspects. It's how can we improve participant outcomes through the plan design? And we just talked through a case study of how that can work. But also from a complexity standpoint, sometimes we find just unnecessary complexity that offers very little benefit to participants. And let's get this out of here so that, so that it's not a potential trap uh, for the plan sponsor to end up having an error. So plan design, is, is that's the second pillar. Third is investment oversight. But again, it's not just about offering best-in-class investments. It's making sure you have the right categories with within a plan. I mean, Boy, we run into that all the time. I mean, they've got. I saw a plan that was a client emailed us his choices. He said, "We said send us the menu." And they had fifteen domestic stock choices. No. They had one foreign choice, and they had two fixed-income bond choices. That was it. I mean, it was so off off base. There's no, I think, out of the 15 domestic choices, I think over half of them were large cap U.S. large companies. Whether it's growth or value, almost became irrelevant because there was so much redundancy in their menu. Well, right. If you want someone to make cookies for you, do you want to put out 15 different types of flour for them to choose to put in? No, you just want to put in the best ingredient that you want. You know. For, not that I'm not a baker, yeah. so I picked a bad example, but obviously you just want the core ingredients and you want the best of each. Well, that's the way we look at an investment menu. There's no reason to have five large U.S. stock mutual funds. Just offer one. And honestly, by offering five as a plan sponsor, you've just created risk. How do you justify that you're offering one, two, three, four, and five? They all hit the same profile. They're all the best. They can't all be the best. So... Right there, you've created an issue as a plan sponsor in, in that now you've got funds that compete against each other, and one's going to hit your investment policy statement criteria better than the other. But more importantly, you're going to create diversification mistakes for your participants when you do that. They think they're diversified because they picked five different funds. Well, no, they picked the five large stock funds. Now they're not diversified. You could have avoided that by only having one fund in, in each category. So, yeah, so investments, that's, that's the third pillar. Fourth is provider consultation. You know, primarily it's the record keeper. Where we assist in all things record keeper oversight. It's not just helping ensure that the, the, the fees are appropriate for the services being delivered. We're ensuring that those services are being delivered appropriately, that they're most effective services. We even get into the weeds of reviewing record keeper documentation. Um, just making sure that everything is working properly from from that end of the equation, and and of course the participant education. So you can develop the best game plan, have a great investment lineup, but if you're not overseeing how the participants are utilizing that menu, may may not get the results that you're looking for. How do people get in touch with Plan Pilot, and who should be who should be the person to reach out to Plan Pilot? I guess is the. Who the should first be, question. Who, who should they be reaching out to? or, or? Who, who, at the, who at a company should be the primary person that should reach out? Who's typically the, the person that would say, hey, we need you to look at our plan? Is that? Yeah, anybody who's responsible for the oversight of the plan. That can be a business owner. That could be a VP of finance, HR director, benefits manager. 
know, it could be they could have a committee that there's someone else who's really assigned as, as being the, the, the head of that oversight team. So, I, so those people would be the go-to people for an employee participant who's going, hey, I wonder who do I talk to at my company? Who do I send an email to or who do I reach out to? What department do I even go to to inquire about this stuff? It's those people. There, there might be a separation there. You know, you, you might have where you know, the head of the retirement committee is a VP of finance, but all participant questions should be directed either to mm-hmm. the HR benefits team or directly to the record keeper. Got it. And with you guys, and, and again, where can we find Plan Pilot? Planpilot.com. It's that easy. And is, is Plan Pilot on social media as well? or We are. I see you on Twitter here and there. And where else? You're, you're asking the archaic guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, 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 we've got presence out there, LinkedIn. Okay. Good deal. Dan, did you have anything else for Bill? Any cheap shots? No cheap shots. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Appreciate in. that. It's thanks for having been me. great visiting with you. Likewise. Bill, thanks again. All right. Thanks, guys. And with that, Bill has left the building. Good conversation. There's and just- he's a good guy, too. He's a U of I grad. There's some good people come out of U of I. Yeah. That's U of Illinois, for those of you in Iowa or Idaho. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's there's just so many things that happen behind the scenes when it comes to the um, employee benefits and 401k, 403b plans and other, other plans like that, that it's, it's just nice to get a, a peek behind about how much effort goes into really doing the right thing and really trying to make these plans as good as possible. I mean, certainly the government does their role in creating the guidelines and the rules with ERISA and the Department of Labor rules. Um, but it's, at a certain point, it has to get executed. And with, with business owners and, and boards of directors and the executives at companies, they're just busy. And you can't do it all, but you still need to do it right. And the employees deserve to have it done right. And um, really thrilled that we were able to have a, a good conversation with Bill. Yeah. And when employers work with folks like Plan Pilot, they're able to bring more value to their employees and help communicate to their employees the value that they're bringing with, through their group benefits. The communication is key because just like the executives and the leaders in the organization, the employees are busy too. And they've got families and they've got lives outside of that. And the last thing they want to do is go home and read a 27-page document that they don't understand. So having that available is is a big deal. So um, hopefully everyone got value out of that. Thank you so very much for listening, as always. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast. Please rate the podcast or share the podcast with friends if you think it might add value to them. So we greatly appreciate you listening. If you need to reach out to us and and interact with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Fierce Fiduciary. Dan is on Facebook, and I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can find me, uh, search Brian C. Beasley, and I'm pretty easy to locate that way. But again, thanks so much for listening, and until next time. Cue the tiger.